Very nice to be in Toronto. I make my annual pilgrimage now to Sati Panya and TBC. When I first came to Toronto after I'd been a monk, I'd been a monk about, I'd been away for seven years. Part of it was not a monk, but I came back first time in 77, and uh, I was with a, another monk. Venerable Anando, he was from Buffalo, and we were visiting our parents. He in Buffalo and my parents in Toronto. And uh, you probably heard the story, but there was a, a strong anti-Hari Krishna feeling at the time. Hari Krishna were on the streets and soliciting money and such like, and they were doing some nefarious things. My dad said that he was downtown, and a woman offered him, a Hare Krishna woman offered him some flowers and then demanded $10. Or demanded some money, took his wallet out, she grabbed 10 bucks. She said, what am I going to do? So they, 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 I think they've changed a lot now, I don't know where they're at, but at the time they had a bad reputation, so we got labeled Hare Krishna, of course. And uh, so we walk on the streets, and it was quite uh, un- very unpleasant. So I spit on a few times, and kind of you come back to your hometown, you finally get your act together. People are giving you a hard time. <laughs> and uh, and then we I remember one morning, and we go out with our alms alms bowls, just to to be monks and walk about and. And then we saw some uh, trash collectors up the road. We thought, oh, here we go. Yeah, well, go, let's go, let's see what happens. And these two Italian guys said, good morning. And it was so lovely. Someone was kind to us. They were very nice. But now, now I walk in Toronto, people are very respectful. Tra- and you can stop traffic sometimes. <laughs> in, in a good way. So that's, you know, that's just so, so encouraging to see that more tolerance and more sense of maybe what a, a bhikkhu is or a monk, uh, more, more religious tolerance and uh, people interested now in meditation. Uh, so this is, these are very, very good signs in our, in our culture, in our society. And I, I live in a Buddhist bubble, so I don't really know what society is about. I just float around from one Buddhist scene to another, and everyone seems to be a Buddhist, so. (laughs) I haven't visited Parliament yet, so. Um, So, it's good to be here. Yesterday I was uh, speaking about uh, cooking of eggs, so I had an omelette this morning, I don't, know, I don't know what you had. And Jennifer explained to me yet another way of cooking eggs. <laughs> I just didn't quite understand, but, um, 
But maybe we could go through that example again of how we learn. I think it's a good, a good thing to contemplate. So let's see, if I wanted to take that Buddha image and create a shelf and put it on that wall, uh, what would I have to do? Putting it on that wall would be different than hanging a small picture. A small picture, I could just take a, a, a small nail and a hook, hang the picture. But with the Buddha, that weighs a bit of... So if I just put a small nail in and a shelf, it would fall off. So I have to figure out how much, how weight, how, how much does the, the Buddha image weigh? What's the wall made of? So it's probably plasterboard, or what do you call that, sheetrock here? I think plasterboard in England. So if you have some experience, you know if you don't find the stud, you're going to have the revenge of the plasterboard on your hands. And anyone who's tried to put something up on plasterboard, you know that. It is massive holes. So you have to figure out where the studs are, so I need a stud finder. Then I've got to mark the studs carefully, and then I've got to get a plate going from stud to stud. Then I can put a, uh, a shelf on that plate, and then I can maybe put the Buddha on there. Right? And again, as I was saying yesterday with cooking of eggs, I have to, I have to submit my, my desire to put up a shelf, which is not a bad desire. I have to submit to the nature of the wall, to the nature of structure of the wall, to the weight of the Buddha, to the nature of fasteners. I have to submit to that. So what has authority in that situation is nature. The nature of plasterboard, the nature of gravity, uh, etc. And, and life is like that, isn't it? If we, don't, if we don't submit to the nature of the way things are, and we function from some idealism or some misguided opinion or uh, some misinformed way of functioning, then we're not going to get a good result. The egg won't get cooked. The Buddha Rupa will fall off the wall. Right? And Buddhism is very much based on that kind of pragmatic intelligence of things, intelligence of understanding the way things are. But obviously its emphasis is on our own uh, conscious experience of being human, being sensitive, being emotional beings, being incarnate in bodies, having personal histories, living in cultures, uh, having formations that age and such like. And understanding all that is understanding Dharma as it applies to me. Now that's not an abstract. It's not an idea about emotionality or an idea about human genetic evolution. It's not that. It's just the pragmatic nature of wall, of plasterboard, of emotion. But my emotion, isn't it? In, in this body, and these emotions, and this personal history, and these parents, and this culture, and this gender, and this age. Um, and that that is the challenge, I think, of of any authentic spiritual practice is to take the abstract which a teacher gives us and to apply it to the concrete reality of our life. Otherwise, it would never work, right? So we have a certain faith or confidence maybe in the teaching, but the, the skill of the contemplative is to always apply that to their own situation in their own time. Otherwise, we just become... 
opinionated Buddhists or non-Buddhists, whatever you like. We just have views and opinions. And that's the danger of being too clever, you know, having too much information and, and thinking we know something when we have a lot of ideas, but we still suffer. We still really haven't understood the way things are. So the Buddha in his pragmatism realized that as long as we, because we are desire beings, we have desire, and there's nothing wrong with desire, um, the only way we'll really fulfill that desire is if we understand the nature of reality and the limits of desire and how desire can be skillfully used for peace rather than unskillfully followed to situations of suffering and confusion. And I, and I, I, I remember reading somewhere that because we are, you know, we have desire and uh, we are kind of made for, for freedom. We have this yearning. We have this yearning for peace or freedom and all of you are here for a similar kind of reason. You're here because you, you, know, you don't want to suffer, you want to be peaceful, you want the heart to be compassionate, whatever way you talk about that. And that's, that question needs to be answered, doesn't it? Not by me, not by a text, but by your own yearning, your own searching. It's important. And that's not abstract. So hopefully the, teacher, the teaching can answer that question for you. Hopefully, yeah. Um, So in this meditation, I was uh, suggesting uh, become conscious of sound again. And that idea of being fully conscious of something is an interesting one. Where if I, if I am to be fully conscious of sound, I have to, I have to listen. It seems obvious, doesn't it? And a commentary about the sound is not really listening. That's an abstract. The sound is loud, the sound is beautiful, the sound is cacophonic, whatever abstract description, it's one step removed from the experience of sound. So just doing that exercise in meditation, saying, well, what is sound really like? What does that require of your, uh, of what, the way you are right now, it requires that you allow the sound to come to you, correct? So I use the word receptivity, receptive, listening. That's a kind of common phrase now, but very useful. And this is the use of, of language, not as abstract opinion or Buddhist list, but actually as a kind of coaching word or a suggestion to yourself about what a right attitude would be or a helpful attitude. And that's a very skillful use of language, isn't it? And that's why I say, like, in a meditation, if, if the meditation instruction is helpful, what's it doing? It's not giving you abstract information, but it's just saying, like, awaken or non-becoming, whatever language you like. So this is a kind of language we can use for ourselves to understand nature. You know, we can use that kind of language. Now, that's different than a language of judgment, the language of idealism, which you should be, which you shouldn't be, the language of culture, maybe, which says something about the present moment. It's, it's not that. It's a kind of existential statement that life is this way. But how, what is it really like? And to really know this moment, you have to wait. And that's the suggestion I made 
in uh, when I say went from sound to the feeling in the hands. Then what happens when you do that? Well, you first have to wait, don't you? You 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 bring attention to the present moment, to a particular sense uh, object, and then you wait, you wait, and all of a sudden things become conscious. It's there. It's there all the time. So your hands weren't there the moment before. But by allowing attention to rest with that, things become conscious. Simple enough, right? So two things you notice, or two things you begin to develop there. One is the capacity to settle the mind into the present moment. Now that settling is coming from, not from a, a willful getting rid of anything, and not from a kind of holding on to anything, but more like a giving yourself to the simple experience of bodily sensation. It's a kind of giving yourself to it, right? Giving time to it, settling into it, waiting. Now that, that, that's, a, that's an exercise you can do all the time. And what I find is if I can, if I can do exercises like that, in, in the experience of ordinariness, in the experience of normality, that builds up in me a capacity to do it when there's something extraordinary. So what would be extraordinary would be, say, let's say you, um, uh, you, 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 you get a diagnosis that you have a kidney problem. Heaven forbid, as they say. I don't wish that on you, but someone gets a, a diagnosis that they have a severe kidney problem. Now, that is much different than just feeling your hands or listening to the sound, but it's still an objective experience, still in the nature of experience, just a different kind of experience with intensity and so on. But if I have trained in being fully conscious, and I've done that a lot, and I understand the importance of that, then when the diagnosis comes and I feel frightened or worried or whatever, that arises in the mind, now I become fully conscious of that, the fear. It's obviously more difficult than something neutral, but it's the same principle. Now, what happens if I become fully conscious of fear? What do I do? Well, there's a difference between fully conscious, being fully conscious of fear and the storyline around fear, as we all know, isn't there? There's a huge difference. The storyline I have to pursue. Okay, what kind of medical treatment will I get? You know, is this terminal? Um, better write my will. <laughs> it's sort of a doomsday scenario here. Don't. Anyway, we'll, we'll all be there someday. Um, so that, that sense of, of dread comes up. Say, this is an extreme now. Fear, dread come up. Now, to be fully conscious of that. What happens if you do that? And first of all, it's difficult because the mind just runs with it, doesn't it? Oh, what am I going to do? But what happens if I have the capacity now to be fully conscious to the feeling of fear and dread? Well, I have to wait. I have to wait. I have to wait because it's powerful. And my desire mind will be to get rid of it, not have it. But if my desire is for peace, and I understand how to cook eggs, and I understand how to do plasterboard, the same understanding has to come to my experience of fear, doesn't it? Right? And this is where wisdom comes in, rather than ignorance. And, and wisdom in Buddhism 
is saying, as you all know, that that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease, and in the cessation there's peace. So the fear has arisen, and it's real, and it's visceral, and it wants to produce lots of thinking. And I have to think because there are practical things I need to think about. But in the feeling, in, in the experience of being fully conscious, if I have the presence of mind to do that, if I have trained in that, the fear comes up, it manifests for a while, it has powerful energy, it bounces up, stays a while, might stay two days, three days, four days, I stay with it, it comes up, I stay with it, it comes up. And eventually, the fires of fear, the fires of fear calm down. They calm down. I still have the disease. I still have to deal with it. But now, because I've understood the nature of cooking eggs, and I've understood the nature of emotion, that emotion is an object, that emotion arises and causes and conditions stimulate that particular kind of emotion, and that emotion is simply a movement in nature, and that it can be known, I can be fully conscious of it, and it will cease. That's understanding how to cook an egg. Right? Now that understanding, if that's fully employed and, and deployed, uh, in the experience of fear in this case, then I begin to understand that peace is this awareness of change, even in the midst of the horror of fear. And that's freedom. Not freedom from being a human being, not freedom from being subject to death and sickness and loss that you can't get out of. But I can get out of the suffering of those very natural conditions, because it's very natural to get sick and die. It's very natural to lose one loved one. It's not very natural to win the lotto. How many people win the lotto, and how many people buy tickets? But the other, the other is very ordinary. And so the, the kind of main, uh, you know, the thrust of the argument for me in Buddhism is that, something I was mentioning yesterday, we have it kind of reversed. We have our priorities reversed because what we emphasize is the objective experience. And what the being fully conscious to change is emphasizing awareness. It's, it's like your finger and your thumb, right? Both, both touch each other, they know each other, right? Now, the finger is like sense experience and the thumb is like awareness. Right? And we usually just on the finger. We don't notice the thumb. Touch another one, touch another one, touch another one, right? We're usually on the finger. So the fear, we, the, the fear comes up, we're just so aware. We know the fear's there, but we're not really fully conscious of it in a way of dharma. We don't know the dharma of fear. We only know the personal horror of fear or the, 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 the constant, you know, what, what the mind creates around that. But fear just as an entity, as a... As a as, a, um, as an experience, as an object of, of awareness, that is harder to know. And so um, for me, the Buddhist practice is, yeah, we have to take care of the fingers. We have to live morally. We have to live responsibly. But also, if we're only on the fingers and we don't notice the thumb, we're kind of missing the whole point of spiritual life. The thing is that in this, this is just an analogy. You know, analogies have a limit. But you, you, need, to, you, need, you need the thumb for, to feel the finger. So reverse it. So in, in the feeling of, in the, in the emotion of fear, when I'm fully conscious to fear, and I emphasize full consciousness, I begin to see the, that, aware, that this is happening in awareness. 
And this is what we mean by refuge. The refuge in Buddha knowing Dharma. Awareness of change. And if we, if we exercise ourselves in these very ordinary ways and begin to see that that is true, not intellectually, but experientially, that, that you can perceive, this, like this room, say, the, I see the lights, and I see bodies and forms and so on, and I could say, I'm here, and the lights are there. That's true, conventionally true. If the light bulb goes out, then to change it, I have to walk over there, get a ladder, and change it. True. But also, there's a perception, which is more difficult and more uncommon, that we're encouraged, that also this whole experience of room and space and color and light and distance and perception of distance is in awareness. Even my hand moving in front of me is in awareness. And that's a different kind, that's a difficult perception, but that's a perception I can hold that this is taking place in awareness. And when I start to cultivate that perception, uh, then I also notice that the objects in awareness are changing, that the objects in this changing space of awareness are happy, unhappy, attractive, repulsive, but that the awareness has no color, has no tone, has no quality. Awareness has no quality, does it? You feel really um, like, uh, I had a Frappuccino with yesterday, was it? Day before, no Frappuccino, very nice. (laughs) I highly recommend it, just before a talk. (laughs) Right? And that has a certain taste, right? And it's pleasant to, to my taste buds, maybe not to yours, I'm sure. Um, and if someone would have put salt in my frappuccino, that would have had a different taste, right? And the experience would have been unpleasant, and a complaint would have been lodged. <laughs> but awareness is neither salty nor sweet. It knows Salty, it knows sweet. It knows feeling disgruntled. It knows feeling disappointed. It knows the feeling of satiation, of non-satiation. Awareness has no color. And this is the curious thing about awareness, is that you cannot find it, you can only be it. You cannot find you can't say, okay, tomorrow I'll be aware. Doesn't compute, does it? Doesn't doesn't really work. But there is knowing now. There is conscious experience now, whatever you want to call that. And that's, to me, very important to begin to see the importance of that rather than just being caught up with sense experience. In our, in our modern culture, there's a lot of emphasis on self-growth or self-development. That's a kind of cultural hang up now maybe I mean it's some of it's very good some it's very but some of it's very narcissistic because they're always sort of caught up about me and my trip whereas in 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 Buddhism we were trying to develop the characteristics and this is I was saying yesterday that the kind of character which can sustain awareness of the way things are Buddhist 
for me, like Buddhist and development of character and, and, and so on, is not about being a nice guy all the time. It, it's not about being some kind of perfected saint. Because personally, I'm no saint. You know, I've got all my grumblings and the rest of, you know, if you, if you put salt in my frappuccino, you know, <laughs> you got trouble. <laughs> so the, 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 one of the dangers of kind of self-development is we have, we have this ideal that I am someone who should be a certain way all the time. But that's not the Dharma. You know, the Dharma is that there are some studs, and maybe every 16 inches, depending on the wall, or 12 inches, there's another stud. But there aren't studs all the time. That's the reality. Right? That's the reality. And it's the same with our own, uh, the movement of our, of, our, of our inner experiences of emotion or bodily pain or memory. It's not all nice. You know, we, we can have really horrible thoughts and, and really we can be petty and, and uh, like Jim Howe used to say he's, you know, he's glad he hasn't got a television on his head to watch Jim TV you know, would, you, would you like that? You know? <laughs> everyone could see what's going on in your, in your head but there's nothing wrong with it you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with feeling angry because to, you know, none of us, I think, like wake up in the morning and say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be angry one o'clock. <laughs> we don't do that. It just happens. Right? So we have a moral responsibility to not harm others, to act and speak in, in skillful ways. But the nature of anger is that it's just the nature of anger. The nature of plasterboard is the nature of plasterboard. The nature of egg is the nature of egg. And we can know that. We can be fully conscious. But if we, if we take a position that, that our spiritual life is getting all the objects right, in other words, getting all the emotions right and all the energies right, then we're looking in the wrong place, I'd say. We're looking in the objective experience rather than in the knowing of objective experience. And that is, I think, a big shift, a big shift in the spiritual life. Not that, you know, not that I, I'm recommending we just follow and indulge in, in negative emotions, but can any, put it this way, can any object really fully satisfy you, fulfill you? Can any object? Now, by objects, I don't just mean Lexuses and, and iPads. More like, you know, what are objects? What are objects? Well, objects of awareness are objects, are, are, are sense experiences. Emotions are objects, aren't they? I can know the difference between anger and fear and love and gratitude and ingratitude. So they are objects. Uh, the bodily feelings are objects of awareness. I can know hot, cold, pain, no pain, energy, no energy. That can be known. So it's an object of awareness. Memory. Memory is an object. It comes and goes. Um, sight, sound, taste, etc. So these are, these are objects of awareness. Now, the question is, can any object ever fulfill you? Can it ever fulfill you? Can it really bring you to peace? And I would say no, because it's contingent. We all know that's a contingent on other things. So if my spiritual practice is misguided to think that 
okay, my objective experiences, all my emotions, all my relationships, all my thoughts, all my memories have to be a certain way. Sweet, nice, and delicate. Right? Or strong, vibrant, and masculine. <laughs> or I won't do any feminist stuff because I'll get in trouble. <laughs> but, but whatever you want, whatever your culture says you should be, whatever your mom and dad said you should be, whatever the monks tell me I should be, um, if I take that as my goal, that the objective experiences I have, emotionally, physically, so on, have to be a certain pattern, I'm doomed. Because they will not, you know what, what, 1% of the time they'll fit that pattern? And the rest of the time they're just going to do their own thing. Right? But if I reverse it, and I, I say, no, it's about the thumb, it's not the finger. It's not about having perfect emotions. It's just knowing that this emotion is difficult. Be careful. Don't dump it on someone. Sure, that's fine. But this emotion is difficult. And to be fully conscious of the difficulty, to be fully conscious of not wanting this thing, to, be, to allow, let it be there, let it flower in your mind, and then let it cease. And this is a very difficult thing to do. But then that takes you to the thumb always. And that's where your freedom lies. That's where your freedom lies. And you see the Baramitas, when we talk about the Baramitas, the development of, of character in, in, in Buddhism, patience. You know, patience is something that has, it can bear with really stupid emotions or difficult emotions or whatever, childish emotions. It can bear with that. Eh? So it's a different kind of quality. For me, that's very important. For me, that, 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 that understanding that it's not about the conditioned phenomena is very important. Because I've suffered, like you've suffered, from lots of should-be's, feelings of guilt, should be a good monk, should be a perfect monk. Oh, I thought I worked that through, da-da-da-da-da. But when I, when I can be fully conscious, like, like boredom, say, guess, what's, guess what monastic life is for the first... Ten years. No frappuccinos. You, know, you get that when you're 40. 40 years and people drive you around, spoil you rotten. <laughs> and I don't mind. <laughs> but, but the first, like, first five, ten years, you're just a junior monk. And, and uh, there is absolute nothing interesting going on, including your mind. <laughs> <There's>, really. <laughs> so what you're faced with is, first of all, willfulness. I will get enlightened. Right? And this incredible, virile, masculine attempt to conquer Mara and become enlightened in a weekend. <laughs> which, is an, <laughs> which is a disaster. And you have some kind of a seizure or something. <laughs> True. And then that willfulness doesn't work. And then you just have the ordinariness of monastic life. And that's boring. Very boring. So what do you do with boredom? Well, uh, there's no, like in Thailand, there was no internet. I had a, I had a nice Buddhist dictionary, the... the um, Termites ate it. 
That was a disaster. It's a lovely book. I've got no books. And I come back from two weeks away and I open the cover and the termites have eaten it. Oh, come on. Give me a break. So then not only do you feel bored, you feel utterly depressed. Disappointment, you know, things like that. And I had a lot of that, and we all do in monasticism. Disappointment, boredom, disinterest. And then, but the teacher says, so why do you suffer? Because the, the damn things ate my book. That's why I suffer. <laughs> or because I'm bored. The teacher says, no, 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 no. No, it's because you don't want boredom. You're not, you're not willing to be fully conscious with boredom. You don't know how to be fully conscious with boredom. You're not patient, Rudamo. You don't know how to endure. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I just, I really needed that. But it's true. So the karmic result of, say, a young guy going to the monastery who's just been able to travel and do what he wanted to do was now there's, there isn't the avenues of escape and distraction. And now the, what's, what's left is the mind wants. The mind wants to go out and do something, be something, become something. doesn't work. And one is faced with something like boredom, disappointment. And teacher says, okay, can you be fully conscious of boredom? What do you mean be fully conscious of boredom? What do you mean by that? You go back to your hut. Gosh, 10 minutes already? <laughs> and you've got a long night. And you're nothing, absolutely nothing. No tea, no coffee. No books, no people to talk to, no one teach, talks English. And it's like you, like the meal finishes at nine in the morning. That's your last meal. You go back to your hut, 9.30, and how much can you clean one little hut? <laughs> you've, you've dusted it a hundred times, and it's only 10 o'clock. <laughs> French monk, he says, meditating. And then he found that he didn't even know how he got there. He was cutting his toenails. He didn't know how he got from A to B. <laughs> so totally lost it. And so then you would try, try, try. And then, and then, no, no, what is it? It's, what's the problem? Is it the boredom or is it the wanting? What does he mean by wanting? Yeah, wanting. Yeah, I, of course I want. I don't want to be bored. That's the problem. Ah, okay, that's the problem. So we go, well, what is boredom really like now? And that's moving away from wanting. I want, you know, I want to get that thing on the wall, but I have to come to the reality of boredom. I have to just, I have to know it like the egg. So what's boredom really like? Begin to let go of desire to get rid of boredom. Boredom becomes fully conscious. Boredom stays there for a while. Boredom ceases and the mind is peaceful. Not because I distracted, not because I got a cup of coffee and Harper's Magazine or something <laughs> to stimulate me. No, it's because I witnessed the arising, the presence, and the ceasing of boredom. And the mind now has a freedom within boredom. Boredom is no longer a threat. One has understood that. It's no longer a threat. And the process is, is somewhat arduous, because that's not... You know, I, I abstract that and I make it kind of 
funny to keep the thing going. But the work is not funny, is it? You know, when you're in those states of mind and you're feeling just like, you know, it's not working, I'm not getting anywhere, self-doubt comes up. Those are, those are very difficult states of mind to be with. They're not funny at all. One can laugh 20 years later. Um, but then, then, then if, the, if the viewpoint, if the viewpoint, it's about the thumb rather than the finger, if you keep remembering that, and you say, well, the, well, well, the, the boredom is one, just one aspect of finger, and for boredom to exist, there has to be awareness. So what is, what is it that knows that? And that's what full consciousness of the way things are is about. Fully conscious to boredom, you're actually emphasizing the thumb rather than the objective experience. So we move away from seeking peace in objective experience. We move to that which is always peaceful, never colored, never salty or sweet, to the awareness of change. As we do that, we can certainly appreciate beauty. We can, we can appreciate uh, you know, delightful social relationships. We can appreciate good literature. It's not, and not a negation of that, but we realize that delightful literature is limited. That's all. And so when something is beautiful and delightful and lovely, we, oh, there's gratitude. Gratitude arises rather than thinking the world owes it to me or demanding it. And when it's the other way, when it is difficult and there is fear and the kidneys have packed in, then, oh yeah, and that's the way it is too. There's refuge. That's what we mean by refuge. There really is refuge within all of that. And actually life is much more, one appreciates life much more because one is no, lam- no longer demanding that the objective world fulfill one in some kind of way, which is impossible. So gratitude becomes stronger, but also a sense of, equanimity, that that life has these different objective experiences. But that's not the refuge. Objective experience is no longer the refuge. The refuge is thumb. So next time I do a thumbs up, (laughs) you know, it's it's a kind of... We use analogies that way, don't we? Metaphors to try to point to something. So in our own lives, when when we are faced with um, just the ordinariness of life, when nothing great is happening or difficult, try to practice that sense of receptivity. Try to go to the end of thought. Like if you're, if you're in the dental office, um, don't pick up the magazine. But just, just sit there and just feel like, well, what does it feel like to be waiting for the dentist? Anticipation. And just know, oh, anticipation feels this way. Or maybe you, you, you know, you've had bad experiences with dentists. Terror feels this way. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, it's this way. Yeah, yeah. This is what... And then you're being fully conscious. And you're emphasizing the thumb. Right? And do that a lot. Especially around the ordinary. Where it's not threatening. It's not difficult. Well, you can do it. And that builds the strength for the extraordinary. In those times when you have, you know, stress in family. When there's, you know, someone is ill. Or, or there's divorce. Or argument or loss or, or betrayal, you know, those are, those are powerful things. And yet we can be fully conscious of those too. But if we haven't trained in the ordinary, it's very hard not to get swept away by those uh, winds, of, winds of fortune and misfortune. So these ordinary things that we sit together, they're not about attaining anything really, I don't think. They're just coming back to that ordinary sense of being fully conscious presence.
and seeing the beauty of that, uh, there was a question that came up. Someone wrote the question saying that they had, you know, they had had kind of three years of experience of meditation, and then they returned to med- uh, and then then all of a sudden the meditation went sour in some kind of way, and the meditation was no longer bringing the same results. If I have the question right, not fulfilling. So thinking, should I meditate or not? To me, that a question is very much about the objective experience being important. So when you have like really peaceful meditations, you think, now I've, I've nailed it. I got it. Be careful. Because anything you think you've got, you're going to lose. So what you set yourself up, don't you? I've got it. So next time you sit, and we've all, you know, all of us who have been meditating, next time you sit, you're already in anticipation. I'm going to get it again. And you get it again, yeah. You get disappointment. <laughs> Until you see, no, it's not about the objective experience. It's about the awareness of the way things are now. So you sit down the day after you've had the fantastic experience, and you've been through that futility of trying to manufacture the same experience again, and you just sit with a, with a mind just totally restless for an hour. And well, that's okay too, because you're emphasizing the knowing rather than the experience. If you keep doing that, you keep doing that, then that sense of refuge, you begin to see it really opens into vast space. Now, giving it any kind of qualitative um, definition, of course, messes it up, because then you start to look for vast space. And, and, you know, the confused mind isn't very vastly and spacious. It's just confused. But that's a being fully conscious and trusting in, in the way things change has its own results, has its own results. And that, for me, that is what faith is about. Faith and trust. What do you trust in? I trust in that. So when I feel... Um, they like these talks. Uh, every time around, around... Well, it used to be like a month before I'd start thinking about a talk... Now it's around four o'clock. Four o'clock rolls around. What am I going to talk about? This is a feeling of not knowing what I'm going to talk about. And it works. It works. And then, you know, five o'clock. Now you really should think of something. You know, they, they paid for the gas. <laughs> They're feeding you. And this is a feeling of anticipation. It feels this way. This is so simple. And then you can do your best, say something, and then you people like you or dislike you. But, you, you know, it's, it's like a constant, constant practice. And then that's refuge. And then you're always available to the next moment, to the next moment. All right, I'll leave you that for reflection. <clears throat> Sadhu, 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 sadhu